Hi, this is Sarah Zarr, and you are listening to This Creative Life. Find out more about this podcast and all the episode notes at our new home at thiscreativelife.substack.com, where you can also learn about the annotated Courageous Creativity audio I'm making for subscribers and some other stuff, and you can um, comment on episodes there as well if you'd like to do that. My guest today is Lindsay Eager, author of several middle grade and young adult books, most recently The Bigfoot Files. Is that correct? That is <laughs> yeah, the it's, most, hard, okay. it's hardly recent, but yes, that was the last one that came out. <laughs> and she is also a writing coach with a few different online courses that are great. Um, and Lindsay is also one of my Utah cohabitant neighbor. I mean, we don't, yeah. Pal, I'm your Utah pal. You're, you also live in Utah is what I'm trying to say. And yes. one of my soulmates in hating hot weather, which we have a lot of in Utah. Yes. And we're both one day going to live like in a Scottish castle or something. Oh my God. Yes. Norway. Like I was looking at places where the sun, well, do you need the sunlight to feel good? Cause I don't, I, can I don't in the no. dark and no. cold and be I, fine. In fact, well, first of all, welcome Lindsay to the podcast. Thank you for having me so much. Thank you. And in fact, I'm furious at the sun much of the time. Yeah. I have like the opposite where we've talked about this, like the um summer sad. So yeah. And, but I'm but I can get it in winter too if it's just like if there's no clouds, if it's just bright sun all the time. I'm just very sensitive to the brightness and yeah. the light. And so I'm always going around. And my husband, he's like always, oh, this room has such great natural light. And I'm like, close the blinds. Um, yep. And it's been, as you know, I'm in Northern California right now. And one thing I've always loved about this particular part of Northern California is that it's right on the coast and it gets very nice and foggy much of the time, or it's supposed to, it used to, but we've been getting a lot of sunny days and I'm infuriated. I'm like, yeah, I'm the just, sun is too much. I'm beside myself. And then everyone flocks to the coast, especially if it's a sunny weekend. And then the traffic is terrible. And and then everyone's going around going, isn't this a beautiful day? And I'm just <laughs> like, no, it's terrible. This is just one of my petty gripes about the world is when people assume that everyone thinks warm, hot weather is quote unquote, nice weather. It just enrages me. Yep. That's how I feel too. And we've had very little snow this winter in Utah. We finally got some this last weekend and I am just thrilled about it. It's been cloudy and chilly and I've gone for walks multiple times during the day and everyone's shut inside. And I just, I, yeah, I'm, I don't know if that means I'm like part walrus or what, but I just love it. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. I'm. I just want it to be like 58 and cloudy all the time. Yep. Um, Speaking of issues with (laughs) our brains. Another masterful segue. Yes. Yes. Uh, One of the things we wanted to talk about today was brains and our brains, your brain, my brain, women's brains, adult ADHD brains, the gifted quote unquote gifted child brain. Um, So let's actually start there because- I know, and, or I suspect it all connects to the writing stuff too, which we'll get into more, but, um, let's just start with like, what kind of a kid were you, what did you love? What did you read? 
what were your challenges and obsessions, et cetera? Mm. I was, so I was the oldest, um, which is, has shaped a lot of who I am. Of how many? (laughs) Of four. Okay. Oldest of four. Um, And I, so I was the boss, but I also was a very compassionate ruler of my family. (laughs) I was pretty precocious, very rebellious, um, very contrarian. If my mom told me not to touch the hot stove, I would ask why, and then I would need to touch it for like, myself. Excuse me, I have to go touch the hot stove right yes. now. Yes. Yeah. So my mom, like my poor parents just kind of had to learn, like that's how Lindsay needs to experience the world. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't trust them. It was just like, I just wanted to see for myself. Um, I read very early. I was um, a sorry, this is going to sound like a horrendous brag, but I was also very musically gifted very early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my parents considered skipping kindergarten. They considered jumping me ahead several grades and they, they didn't. And, and I'm glad that they didn't, but it meant that I was bored in school a lot and, and simultaneously praised by teachers and Sunday school people and adults. I mean, I, I just, when I think about my childhood, I think of sort of leading children who were younger than me in stories and plays and ballets. And just, I was the director. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I just remember constantly wanting to be around the grownups because that was where I felt more at home, either to entertain them or to like impress them with Mm -hmm you know, how mature I was. <laughs> and um, and yeah. eavesdrop was part of that, like wanting to listen in on what they were talking about, or did oh, yeah. you want to be the center of attention? Oh no, I wanted to be the center of attention for sure. And, and, you know, at the time, so I have an 11 year old, very precocious child now who very much believes that she is keeping up in conversations with the adults. And sometimes she is, but at the time, I, I mean, I really fully believed that I could hold my own in these grown up conversations. And I look back now and I'm like, Lindsay, no, you just <laughs> butted your way in and they indulged you. And that was wonderful. But um, I, I was no prodigy. I just was an oldest child who constantly needed my ego stroked and needed mm-hmm alone time to be with my brain and needed to constantly be moving, thinking, talking, making. I mean, I was just a whirlwind. Um, Difficult to get me to bed, to go to sleep at night, difficult to get me to nap. Um, But, but very happy, like very super into whatever it is I was doing. I wasn't a pessimistic kid who hated things. I loved pretty much everything. Like I could be convinced to go along with anything. And I would take it over and just try to make it, I don't know, just make it amazing. That's the kind of kid I was. And, and what were some of those formative reads? Mm. Uh, well, I, I did grow up in a house full of books. My parents uh, would regularly take us to the DI, AKA the Utah Goodwill mm-hmm. and Desert fil- Industries. Desert Industries, shout out. <laughs> Um, and like we, and let us fill up the cart with picture books, used picture books were like 10 cents, 25 cents back then. And like chapter books. So we had this eclectic collection of like both classic picture books, like Marie Sendak, where the wild things are and outside over there were, and chicken soup with rice were all like favorites and Arnold Lobel, Lobel, mm-hmm. Lobel, so frog, frog and, and toad. toad, but also, um, owl 
uh, Owl at Home was one of my favorites. Mouse Soup, Giant John, like all of those Arnold Lobel books I loved. Lots of Dr. Seuss. Bartholomew Cubbins was one of the first like big picture books I read um, by myself that I loved. Did but you we- read the um, Great Brain books? I did not. My dad really wanted okay. me to read those. And we I had those. those. It's and funny I- because I was this little kid in San Francisco just discovering the Great Brain books at the library. Yeah. And then as an adult, I was like, Oh, those kids were Mormon. <laughs> and that is <laughs> after I like lived in Utah for 20 yep. years. And that is fully why I was like, yeah, no thanks. I knew they were Mormon. <laughs> I knew like, my I parents were I have a lot of Mormon like, kids in my life already. Thanks. Yeah, like no thanks. Well, and and same with like my mom tried to get me to read Anne of Green Gables and Little House on the Prairie and I was like pioneer girls, no thanks. Well, I should I- say like you grew up Mormon, right? I did grow up Mormon. Yeah. And I, so we're not disparaging. No, 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 no. LDS I, kids. We're just saying not. it was like overly familiar to you. Oh yeah. yeah. And like, and, and Mormon or LDS as we're supposed to be calling them now, like LDS um, culture has their own publishing houses and their own kind of, they try to make their own literature for people who are in the church and they're just not always so great. Mm-hmm. Um and I grew up in Utah County, which in the 90s and early, we're saying early aughts now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me feel so like fancy. Um, <laughs> at that time, Utah County was 88% Mormon. Right. I mean, that that kind of homogeny just like does not exist anywhere else. Maybe it's Amish intense. country. It's intense. Yeah. So, so. Anyway, we had like, we just had so many random books. And as I got older, you know, I loved Beverly Cleary books, all of those, um, Harriet the Spy, I loved. Did there come up, did there come a point where you like were interested, like you were gravitating toward books that made your parents go, uh, or maybe if not your parents, like other people in your life be like, those are too secular. (laughs) Don't read that. Like, (laughs) It wasn't until later and, um, it was, well, okay. So two big ones that I can remember. The first one was in junior high when I got really into Egyptology and Mm -hmm. I mean, the mummy had come out. I was already kind of obsessed with ancient Egypt because it's just one of those things that I think kids love like dinosaurs and sharks. And it's just cool. Um, I used a Barnes and Noble gift card to buy this gorgeous illustrated, version of the book of the dead. And my mom was fully freaked out that I was trying to perform some sort of resurrection ritual in my basement bedroom and was very (laughs) concerned. And I just was like, no, it's just cool. Like they mummified people. It's awesome. And this is like all their spells. And my parents were, my mom especially was very worried. The other one was later when I was in high school, everyone was passing around this book called Jay's journal. Do you remember Jay's journal? No, that, I mean, I'm significantly older than you for one thing. <laughs> sure. But you and did grow up here too. No, I didn't. Or not. You, not, you didn't no, grow up here. You were no. living here at the time. Uh, well, I, I moved there in 2000. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what was Jay's journal. It That sounds like, uh, was it like a modern day version of Go Ask Alice or something? Yes, it okay. was. It was like, oh, this is a memoir told from someone who was actually there. It was some Pleasant Grove kid who started using Ouija boards and got possessed and then uh, like killed himself or killed someone or- mm-hmm. um, Your basic satanic panic. Your basic satanic panic book. And, and you know, I had zero interest in reading it until 
they told me not to. And until then, it was probably a school assembly where they were yes, like, don't read this book. And then everyone basically, immediately read it. That was basically it. And I somehow got a hold of two copies and also checked out the one from the school library and then just refused to give it back. And so my locker was like, Hey, you want to, you want a copy of Jay's journal? Come, It was like a <laughs> that's amazing. Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> situation. Like if you wanted to read Jay's journal, you go see Lindsay and knock three times and <laughs> And then the, the Da Vinci code, I, you know, I read that and, um, I was obsessed with that. I remember that, but really the only thing that was sort of not really allowed in my house was Led Zeppelin. And that oh, was the best band in the, in the history of rock and roll. Ex- well, yeah. And ex- <laughs> again, like, would I have thought it, Led Zeppelin was that big a deal? Had it not been forbidden to me? I'm not sure. I sure love them and sure think that they are all that, but my dad, my dad was fine with nine inch nails. My dad was fine with anything, but he sat me down like in seventh grade and said, now Lindsay, no Led Zeppelin, uh, because they have a lot of satanic imagery and I don't I mean, want to, to be get fair, like all those seventies, there was like a lot of seventies bands that, oh yeah, the members got very into the occult. It was like a whole thing. You it know, was in like the black 70s. Sabbath. Yeah. Like, and like totally. everyone was obsessed with Anton LaVey and everyone read the satanic Bible and it's just like, yep. It was totally a whole thing. It just is funny now looking back and just going, oh, oh, dad, that you thought that that was the biggest thing that you should fear for your teenage daughter, like that she might accidentally summon the overlord, like, oh, dad, <laughs> there just were other, other things going on yeah. at the time that were far more that he should have been worried about nefarious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, I mean, we were, you know, I was allowed to read pretty much whatever, um, for the most part, I remember finding a copy of the witches of Eastwick and like skimming the pages and finding all of the sex scenes and reading those and like, <laughs> just being like, whoa, this is a grown up book. Yeah, there was, that was what was, what got passed around when I was in junior high. It wasn't, what we wanted to read was all the sex parts of every yep. book that existed. So yep. that's what got passed around. And um, there wasn't like the, as I mentioned, I'm older. So I was in the, growing up in the early, like I was a teenager in middle school in the early eighties. Yeah. And um the satanic panic was a few years in the future. Yeah. Like late, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. That wave of it anyway. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, that, yeah. That, that iteration it comes and goes, it sure um, does. But, but the sex definitely the, the big one was someone had Judy Bloom's wifey. Oh, so yes. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I but sure am. Probably someone got a hold of it because it was like, oh, Judy Bloom, she writes teens and middle grade books. But this one was, you know, this Not. was an adult novel, <laughs> but somehow yeah. this kid had it. And I mean, that dog-eared paperback just went around the classroom a hundred times. Yeah. Well, I, still, I still remember certain like images from that book. It's funny. This is like a slight tangent, but uh, my first YA will come out. I don't know, someday it's been under contract since 2015, but it'll come out someday. And it is very much full of, um, it's not full of sex, but it's full of sex jokes and dick jokes and crass language because it's sort of a nod to teenage me who 
like I was already a big reader, but friends that I had would read anything that had any kind of naughty language in it. That was like the best way to get teenagers to read was to tell them that there was like a sex scene in the book. So my first YA will be extremely not necessarily parent friendly, but that's just, that's like my little wink and hug and love letter to teenagers who sometimes just need some dick jokes to help them get through a book. And, and I'm hoping it will be like passed around and, in that same way that all the, all the naughtiest parts will be dog-eared, you know, that would be an amazing tribute. It would. I, be. I do remember the funny thing is though, after reading someone also like was passing around penthouse letters in sixth grade. <laughs> oh my God. And then we were reading like Judy Bloom's wifey. So when, I, and I kept hearing about Judy Bloom's forever. Yeah. And how it was, it was like impossible to get a hold of because it had been taken out of all these school libraries and you just like, you could not get this book. Yeah. And then when I finally, finally like got a hold of a copy of Forever, it was so anticlimactic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because I had already read like Penthouse Letters and Wifey. So yep. I was like, this is it. Like this is the big controversial scene. It's kind of Yeah. Funny. Well, I have I have very strong memories too of in sixth grade when the teacher had stepped out of the classroom, someone got open the dictionary and started looking up, you know, body parts and sex and and um other sexual acts and reading them out loud and and just having a weird kind of out of body experience and just going well yeah like this is what kids will do if you if we don't if we can't find it in fiction or find it reflected on tv we'll go to the dictionary and and laugh about this because it's just sort of the nature of that age and growing up so true so true yeah and and for me it was like very concentrated I'd say in like sixth seventh eighth grade once I got to high school which is the time when people seem to really when parents seem most alarmed about it oh yeah and really that's too late sales. at that point like <laughs> yeah it's oh, like yeah. your sixth graders you need to your fifth and sixth graders you need to be having these conversations with so yeah I alluded to alluded I I mentioned this in the intro but um talk you've you've recently yes uh like had a diagnosis or realized that you have adult ADHD. Yes. And tell us about that. What, what did you think was your issue before? How did you Mm. come to land on this and how has it changed how you see yourself and how you approach your life? Yeah. It's been huge. Like probably the most significant thing that's happened for me in my personal life in the last, you know, five years. Um, I always knew I had anxiety and I do have a separate diagnosis of anxiety, but it's really hard to tell where the anxiety ends and the ADHD begins. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always knew I had anxiety. I've had depression on and off my whole life, not for a really long time though, actually. Um, and my struggles were always, you know, being this, incredible overachiever having again adults praise me tell me how you know I was going to be president someday I was going to do all of these things and I always 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 knew that I was going to be a writer and so um, I, I was always laser focused on that as well and at the same time just doing very basic things like turning homework in on time or studying for tests, which I would usually ace because I was very good at cramming at the last second. I just had this horrible procrastination 
um, or like stay up all night to finish a project issue. And I just always thought, I just always assumed I was either lazy or terrible, like just not responsible, like not dependable, not reliable. Those are the, those are the big, um, sort of self talk, like problematic self-talk that I've had, um, for as long as I can remember that I'm, I'm too much. So I would always justify it too, by being like, well, I'm, I'm just too brilliant to be tied down by like (laughs) deadlines, you know, like, like, excuse me, I'm gifted. So exactly. Well, that was how I had to, that was how I had to, um, twist things in my brain in order to not hate myself, you know, for, for failing to turn something in on time again and having a D in that class or whatever, even though I knew I was smart enough and I knew that I knew the material, it was just such a struggle in high school. Um, in high school, I should say too, much of my time was taken up by this very tumultuous, emotionally abusive relationship that truly took over my life until Mm. I was 22, like just from 15 to 22, those years were swallowed up by that. And, um, and 22 was the year I finished my first novel, then got pregnant, then dumped his butt and then became a single mom all in that, that year. And it was the beginning of the end for so many things, like Mm. so many terrible things. Then, um, you know, I've never really held down kind of a quote unquote normal job. I've always done things like, teaching piano lessons, um, like gig work basically, Mm -hmm. because I can set my own hours and I didn't necessarily have instructions to follow. Those were always really hard for me, or I would just get, I would just get so bored. Mm -hmm. And I should say boredom feels like one of those words. That's an indulgence, like, Oh, wow. You were bored too bad. But something I've learned about an ADHD brain is that boredom can be physically painful. Mm. Um, and, and boredom can cause, I mean, boredom basically is, you know, that, that feeling when you are not processing, not processing, what's the word I'm looking for when your brain produces something, but it doesn't absorb it. Um, that's what Mm. I'm looking for absorbing. Mm -hmm. Um, the ADHD brain does not produce enough dopamine or norepinephrine, and it doesn't absorb the dopamine and norepinephrine that it does produce. And so boredom is basically an ADHD to an ADHD brain. It's a signal that like, you're going to die. If you You don't shortage, you need to produce some dopamine really quick, which, you know, is why you get the stereotype of ADHD kids jumping on chairs and running around and being so loud and hyperactive. Their poor brains are deprived of dopamine and you know, that's why, you know, you get kids who are fidgeting and who are wiggling around when they're trying to concentrate. That's a great thing for someone with ADHD to wiggle around and move around. It might be really frustrating to look at, but that's them trying to focus, Mm -hmm. um, by creating that dopamine somewhere else. So, so that was kind of the perception I had of myself before was that I was undisciplined, um, lazy or, or even like, obsessive because I can and do get into these modes where I am nonstop working and that's how I'm able to finish things. And I've always just thought, well, that means that I'm not healthy. I have these obsessions. I don't, um, I don't manage my time. Well, I know now that it's just kind of my, my brain's rhythms and that's just fine. So 
couple years ago, a friend posted about her adult ADHD and I was shocked because I just never, ever thought that she had this. I just associated it with like Jim Carrey, like, you know, like the, the hyperactive little boys in elementary school who are always in trouble. And so she'd posted, she'd like written about it on her website and I read about it and just thought, oh, that's me. Um, and some of the things that she was talking about were, um, constantly starting new projects and not finishing them, um, feeling time blind. So feeling like your perception of time is not the same as everyone else's. And that makes you either chronically late or chronically, you know, stuck so that you're not late, um, or chronically stuck yeah. in hyper-focus, which we kind of talked about. And when you said that on Twitter, I was like, Oh, cause, cause you, I said like, I don't, I have trouble. I've read about ADHD off and on over the decade because I've often suspected that's one thing going on for me. Yeah. But then there's so many things when I read the symptoms, I'm like, no, like that's the opposite of me. But then you were like, what if being the opposite is like a defense mechanism because you recognize it's like compensation because you recognize you have these things and you compensate because it's coupled with like wanting to be a people pleaser and a good girl and, and perform well and all of that. So you're constantly compensating because like, for me, the time blindness might be, I'm always on time to everything almost obsessively. So, and I get really mad when people are late. (laughs) See that could could be a coping mechanism that you have internalized. But like I, I, if I have one thing scheduled in a day and I know this thing's only going to take an hour and a half. I just feel like I can't do anything else that day. Oh, and yeah, so or I else, think or it's that. What? what would happen if you did? I don't know. Like I'm not going to be ready. Yeah. You'll be late. Thing. Right. Well, so not that- late, but like not ready, like not right. Present and prepared. Okay. I'm obsessed with being prepared, but at the same time, I wait till the very last minute. Yeah. I so mean, I'm, so I'm obsessed with the idea of being prepared and that anxiety over being not prepared, but then I'm not actually doing the preparations. Right. Right. And that could be, I mean, there's a lot of people who have ADHD who have, who, who have, you know, 10 years of never being late for anything, but what you don't see behind the scenes is yeah, they're, they're sitting there waiting for it to start for two hours and they're frozen and then they lose that time. So it could be, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of checklists online. Like you said, you looked at maybe some symptoms of ADHD and thought maybe that resonates. Maybe that one doesn't. Um, yeah. I don't know. And, the, and type- the anxiety piece too, like you said, Oh yeah. like if you say don't process or absorb dopamine, yeah, that's going to also affect like depression and anxiety. Oh yeah. So totally. it's a whole like um, cluster of Sure is. Sure is fun. (laughs) So that, I think that's, what's been hard for me is like, is this depression, anxiety, ADHD, growing up in a dysfunctional household, religious indoctrination, or all of the above? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of all of them. Well, there was a time too, where I thought, oh, I might be on the autism spectrum because that's also a neurodivergent disorder like Mm -hmm. ADHD. Um, And like, 
who knows? I, you know, I, I self-diagnosed when I kind of read that friend's blog post, I went and saw a counselor about it who was not a psychologist and, or a psychiatrist and was not in a position to give me a formal diagnosis, but based on one session with her, she was like, yeah, I would guess that you have ADHD. This all sounds pretty classic and it sounds pretty severe. Um, and then she gave me a referral and some paperwork to go get officially diagnosed. And I came home, forgot about it, lost my paperwork. And, and a year later, finally was like, oh yeah, I was going to do something about that. That's amazing. That's like, I love that story. Oh, then, then when I came back to get diagnosed, um, you know, they're having me fill out this paperwork and I, I finished filling it out and hand it over. And she said, you're here for ADHD. And I said, I think so. And she said, yeah, I just watched you fill out that paperwork and jump all over. And while you were writing one thing, you were reading something else. I think you, I think, yeah, let's get you tested for ADHD. <laughs> um, it just, so has, when, how long ago was that? So that was July was when I got the official diagnosis and, you know, it's different for everybody getting diagnosed. There's some people who can go talk to their GP or an ADHD specialist of some sort who, or a psychologist and, and get a diagnosis in one day. I went to a psychological testing center, um, and like did all of these tests that were like, build this with these shapes and make oh, it God. look like this. And like, what do you like, here's some words. And I want you to say the first word that pops back in your head, or here's some like historical trivia. It was very weird and like scary. Um, and also like a, th I don't know, 300 question long questionnaire mm -hmm. about my behavior and, and, you know, in return though, I got, I got diagnosed with ADHD with moderate to severe ADHD. Um, there's three types of ADHD. Um, the first type is ADHD hyperactive, which does not necessarily mean your body is hyperactive. It can mean your brain is hyperactive. There is the second type, which is called ADHD inattentive. This is what used to be called ADD. And now they've kind of grouped it all together. And then there's the third type, which is the combined type. And I am the combined type. And I also got the or the anxiety diagnosis. Um, and I got, you know, 12 pages single spaced of, of a diagnosis and of thoughts from this psychiatrist that were so helpful. And I, I get those out and reread those every once in a while. And just like going through things that I talked about and, and, you know, issues that I've had in my life and her kind of evaluation of it. One thing that is hilarious and related to writing is that she said, I mean, I just don't, I think just naturally I have a pretty um, strong self-esteem and like a lot of confidence and um, just like conviction in what I do. And so when she was asking about my career, I was like, well, I'm a writer. I'm really good at it. And like, this is my calling in life. So she, she wrote like, Lindsay has some delusions of grandeur. She really thinks that she's amazing, but you know, she is published. So maybe, maybe she's not wrong. And I just was like, not Damn. a delusion of grandeur. I know. Well, I just, I had this moment where I was like, uh-oh, is this like a confident woman issue that like, it's so rare that a woman can say, this is what I love to do. And I'm good at it. And like the world will remember me for it someday. <laughs> is that so rare that I 
have to be diagnosed with that. That's now like pathological. Anyway, I'm, oh, I'm like, I think I have pathological delusions of grandeur anyway. So, so what's the end game of diagnosis? So is it about medication or is it just picking up other tools to help you or what's, how does diagnosis help? Yeah. So for me, um, it has been about medication. It's about treatment. It's not something that can be healed or fixed. It is literally, my brain is literally physically different. My prefrontal cortex, which holds all of the executive function. So like being on time, making decisions. I have a very difficult time making decisions, um, especially if they're little and inconsequential. That's just like so difficult. This for is me. uncomfortably familiar. Go yes. on. <laughs> yes. Well, and luckily I have the most chill husband in the world. So I'll be like, I just need you to decide what we're watching tonight. I just need you to make a decision. And he'll be like, well, we watched face off the other day. That was his choice. So like, that was helpful. It was not the fate of the nation in the decision-making when the fate of the nation is in the de- decision-making. I'm great at making decisions. It's just those little daily things, which is why I like wear the exact same thing every day now. And I like, Anyway, all of those executive function things are smaller. That whole area is smaller in my brain. Um, So a doctor, an ADHD doctor that I have mixed feelings about, but who's on kind of the forefront of like ADHD research, um, his name's Dr. Russell Barkley. He compares the ADHD brain to someone who has diabetes, which as you already know, my husband has type one diabetes. So this was a very, as do I, yes, you too. We have talked about Uh this many times. Um, this was a familiar metaphor to me. So he just basically said, listen, I know there's a lot of, uh, moral fear about treating kids and adults who have ADHD with stimulant medication, because it, you know, there's all these phrases that float around, like you're giving them legal crack, or it's basically cocaine, um, things like Ritalin and Adderall are stimulant medication. But he said, would you deny somebody with diabetes, the chemical insulin that they need for their pancreas to function. I mean, yes, that's what our healthcare system does. Right. It deny insulin to diabetics. It does deny, right. But, but, but in theory. Be that as it may, in theory, yes. Well, and even there are people who think that, you know, if you could just eat better, you could cure your diabetes. So that yeah, maybe like, is not the best no. medicine. Yeah, exactly. Like the, right. pan- it, it, the pancreas and the brain, neither of them are producing the hormone that you need to function. Yes. You need to get it from somewhere. Well, and I think in just like culture, we hear the phrase dopamine and we think like, oh, chocolate, rushes, uh, roller coasters, sex, impulsive behavior. And it and it becomes associated with these kind of uh, wild dessert like things that are just for, you know, the fun times in life. But it's you know, if you don't have dopamine, you can't function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for me, treatment has been about medication. I take Lexapro for my anxiety, um, which I don't know if I'll always take. My doctor was very much like, you can heal your anxiety with this medication. We're going to see if this medication helps sort of those kind of frayed receptors in your brain. And we'll just see. Um, and then I now take Ritalin three times a day. And, um, the first day I took Ritalin, I felt so sleepy. I just wanted to lay down and take a nap. And I was so confused. It was, I was like, what, like this, why am I so sleepy on Ritalin? And I realized, oh, this is what a normal functioning brain feels like. It's calm. It's quiet. 
one thought comes at a time. I'm just so used to this rushing freeway of thoughts and feelings and impulses in my head constantly. It is like 10 billion TV stations on all the time in my head. And, and when my Ritalin is working, it just is quiet. And I mistook, I mistake that every time for sleepiness, Mm. but I, I, that same day I sat down and did like an hour and a half of administrative work on the computer without taking a break. And then was like, Oh, Oh, this is what it feels like to have a neurotypical brain. Brilliant. So that's what I do. I, I have self-medicated with coffee for years without really realizing that that's what I was doing Mm -hmm. because caffeine is a stimulant. I was drinking between 48 and 60 ounces of coffee every day, um, up until about 10 o'clock at night. And then I would go to bed at 11, no problem because coffee calms me down. It doesn't pump me up. It, it, helps my brain focus. Hmm. So now I, I take, I take Ritalin three times. It lasts in my body. I'm on a short acting, short acting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's what I prefer because I can kind of, you know, I don't like to be on Ritalin when I go out for a run because it makes my heart thump a little too, you know, Mm -hmm. fast for my, for my taste. So I'm on the short acting. It lasts three hours and 30 minutes in my system. And I take that three times a day. And then I start drinking coffee at about 6 PM and drink it until I go to bed, <laughs> which is wild. I know, but <laughs> you know, I just, it's so obvious now, if I forget to take Ritalin, if I try to write a grocery list and I haven't taken Ritalin yet, it's, it's a very emotional thing because mm-hmm. I just feel very scattered. So that's what it's been for me, but it's also, you know, medication is one part of it. The other part of it has been some sort of therapy or coaching. I am not a fan of therapy for me because I am obnoxious and I am smarter than every therapist. And it's really, it's not a great thing to think that. And I'm, I'm very sorry, but that's just, I I think that's fair. I've heard several friends say that. And I've felt that myself sometimes in my therapy process. So I, I get that. And I'm, I'm also the type of person who does a lot of self-help on my own. Right. So if it's therapist- so you like drop a term to your therapist and they're like, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, that, yeah. That, like, or well, like, I read six books about it. So exactly. <laughs> or if they're like, you know, have you thought about journaling? And I'm like, Oh, are you serious? Do you think I have not come across that? I know. So what I found is a group ADHD coaching program that is my favorite thing in the world is the best thing I did last year. It's called focused. Um, it's run by this woman who has adult ADHD, Kristen Carter. She's amazing. She, she has a podcast that she does on ADHD. That's really great. And then I pay her monthly and she does, um, like group lectures and workbooks on different issues. And there's a Slack channel. It's been, it's the best I can dip in and out as I need to, I can listen to it on double speed so that I can zoom through it. Cause that's what I do. And <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. And anyway, sorry, I can keep talking about ADHD forever. Well, but yeah. I'll, I want to like connect it to now like writing and your writing process. Yes. The good and the bad and <laughs> how that plays into getting books done or not yeah. getting them done. What so, that looks like for you. As you will notice, my most recently published book came out in 2018. That is 100% not how I want it and not what I wanted. And um, it happened because from the time I sold my first book in 2014 until 2018, I started 
a lot of projects and just was like, great, I will uh, have a middle grade come out every year and I will have YA come out every year and I'll also have adult come out every year and I'll write some chapter books too. And I was constantly starting new projects, sometimes finishing them, sometimes not, sending them to my agent, sending them to friends, just expanding, just wanting to do it all and have it all. And just like when I was a child, like I just, I just get excited. I just want to do all the things. I just love it. I just love writing so much. And as much as publishing does not love me back, I really love it. And what that meant was juggling all of that. Plus, you know, I got married in 2016. I had another baby in 2016. All of that meant, well, no human can do all of that Mm -hmm. basically. And I, crashed year after year. And by crash, I don't mean like emotionally crashed and was like, oh, I can't write for weeks. It was more like, oh, I missed these deadlines. I should have done this, but now I feel shameful ever, you know, that I haven't finished this book. So I'll start a new one. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, crashing is, uh, is usually adding more work and ignoring what I've already started, which just builds up and creates more crashes. Um, So you know, that's like the not so great part about not knowing I had ADHD and trying to publish is I just lack the, it's very hard for me to constrain down to A, what's actually the priority because it's under contract and B, like what is actually feasible? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still regularly, I'm, I'm working so hard on this and I'm getting better at this, but if I sit down to write like goals for the week, I still try to do things like write two novellas. And it's like, Lindsay, no. In a week? (laughs) Like, could I? Yes. I know that I could because that was what 2019 was like. My husband was out of work. I was between publishing paychecks and I ghost wrote 25 romance books. Oh, I forgot about that year. In a year. Lindsay, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had blotted it from my memory (laughs) oh I would like to too I this year more than a lot of people who followed you on Instagram and stuff were like um vicariously just stressed out I know I know I know and I was like it was okay it was um it was better than not doing anything you know see even that that's like my ADHD brain that's like (laughs) it's all or nothing it's either work every single second I mean Last year for 2020, my big goal of the year was to have times when I am awake and not working, Mm. which was like wild to imagine. Like, well, if I'm, if I'm cooking dinner right now, I'm actually thinking about writing like, and that counts as work. And I've gotten better at that. But anyway, so I, I just, um, I really am working on constraint and doing one thing at a time and trying to prioritize and, and you know, I, I got a new agent in 2019 and that's been helpful. An, an agent who I can, I can send her an email and say, Hey, I have all of these things that I want to do. What should I do? And she'll mm-hmm. tell me her opinion and I trust her. And she'll say, this is a deadline. Do this. Um, that's really helpful. But you know, the upside is like, I don't know if you'll find another writer who has as many ideas and projects and, and energy for this job than I do. And I'm, I'm, you know, so that's the good thing is like, mm-hmm. I will write myself to death with a smile on my face and be so happy that I did it. But the downside is like, I'm a human and I also am a mom. 
um, and a wife. And turns out you should talk to your family members and not just that's what they say right around them. I write mostly at my kitchen table with people talking to me and talking at me and needing help operating toys and pronouncing words. And anyway, that's, I forgot the question. (laughs) (laughs) No, that, that makes sense. So, I mean, do you, when, when you're going to go, okay, like this is the deadline thing, either contractually or your agent has given you one to help you. You're, I'll say proponent advocate of fast drafting. Yes. And you have a, you teach a course on fast drafting, fast drafting, which I find very difficult to say and extremely difficult to do. But um, yeah. Is that your process? Like write as fast as you can to get the first thing out. And what's, if you could like summarize briefly the philosophy behind that, because I, I have the fast drafting course and I, there was some stuff in the introductory materials. I was like, Oh, this, this makes sense. This is probably not going to be my process, but it makes sense. So tell me what that is. Well, and I want to say upfront, I'm so against, I I try really hard not to give blanket advice or say, this is how you should do it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, But what a lot of my courses are about is about figuring out why something works or doesn't work so that you can then figure out something better or be like, oh, this is the principle behind it. I get it. So the principle for fast drafting for me is out. I call it outrunning the anxiety basically. Um, and also, so typing as fast as I can, not worrying about complete sentences in the first draft, not worrying about repeating myself, sometimes stopping to give myself notes, even in the middle of like the prose, getting it all in one document. It basically feels like a big giant, um, like thought download or like mm-hmm. free write sometimes that works best for me because it's so easy for me to, in my head, dismiss some of these first things that come to mind. And sometimes I should, like, sometimes the first thing that pops in my head is not the best thing. And I fully understand that, but I want to get them all out on page actually, because I find when I'm in composition mode, like drafting and creating mode, I'm actually not that great at determining what is good and what isn't, nor do I want to be. That's when the breaks get put on for me. If I stop to think about like, is this good? Is this the best it could be? Should I keep pushing? Should I keep brainstorming for like a better line of dialogue or metaphor here or plot point here? Um, I want to keep those parts of my process as separate as possible. So when I'm in drafting mode, anything and everything goes, it goes directly. If it pops in my head, it comes out onto the page and it does leave a mess to sort through later for sure. But, but the upside to that is like, A, I'm expecting the mess and I'm happy to go through and write a second draft based on that mess because I'm, I, I, I'm planning on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the other great thing about it is B, like I can wait until I'm in the right headspace to do that. Like, I don't know about you, but there are definite rhythms to my creative process. There's times when it feels really good to do very like left brain work, like research and making lists and brainstorming and 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 like, um, nitty gritty editing. Like there's times where that makes me feel like, you know, Oh, I'm a real writer putting on like with my red pen, but there's other times where I, I don't want to do that. I feel messier than that. And I want to make new things. So it's just like figuring out emotionally where and mentally where I'm at, and then trying to like hit the, like match up the the mode that I'm in with the part of the process that I need to do. And, you know, what's really interesting about that for women 
um, or anyone who has a menstrual cycle, that's related. Oh, you know, where that energy is, is yep. like related to your hormone oh, yeah. cycle and, and the kind of energy, the kind of focus, like, is this a good time for administrative tasks or is this a good time for creating? It's really, um, it's connected. It for sure is right before my period, like the week leading up, I am very ruthless and reckless in what I make. And I find it a very good time to draft because I just feel very like, who the hell cares? I'm laying it all out. And I, I can do some of my boldest work, but when I'm actually menstruating, like that's the time to sit and make lists and plan and, and, and also- take naps. <laughs> And t- I, if well, you're I'm, me, just I, lay in bed. <laughs> right, right. Well, and like, I think list making is my equivalent of taking naps, basically. Mm-hmm. It's that same, it's, it's itching that same scratch. It is all related. And it's, and it's, um, and, you know, time of day can really change yes. what I'm in the mood to do. Yeah. And so, you know, charting all of this, clocking it, or even just learning to be aware of it. Um, that's the first, I mean, that's before you can like work with it, you have to start noticing it and just go, Oh, I noticed that during this time, I'm more inclined to be good at this type of task. Exactly. And then maybe after like several months or more of observing it, then you can start to kind of work with it. And I'm really learning with my calendar to not put things yes. during, during certain times, certain, <laughs> certain times. And just like, you know, I'm not going to, like put a bunch of stuff that that is like involves me showing up for a thing and engaging with people. I'm not going to put that during these 10 days yeah. because I'm not, it's going to be excruciating for everybody. Yeah. Well, and I think for, for women or for people who maybe are not cis males, <laughs> um, it can be really tricky not to, not to frame that as, some sort of self-care or indulgence um, to be like, oh, I'm going to be nice to myself and not, and not schedule, you know, this type of thing during right. this time of the month. But, but if you're. Or like a weakness, you know? Yeah. Well, like, I, oh, I, I'm just, I'm, well, I'm only good for half of the month. That's not exactly. what we're saying. Yeah. No. Well, and, and if, I mean, I, I'm pretty good at taking care of myself as it comes up and just being like, Oh boy, I'm tired. It's time for a cookie. I will have my cookie. Now I deserve this cookie. I'm good at that, but I know a lot of other people struggle with yeah, feeling like it's an indulgence or feeling like it's this special treat to, 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 um, plan for yourself in a nurturing way, but it's also the most efficient too. Yeah. You're, you're working with the flow of your energies instead of against it. Exactly. And there's, and, and not only is that kind to yourself, it's just freaking the smart thing to do. It's, it's the most efficient thing to, Mm -hmm. to, yeah, to, to plan that sort of thing. It's hard though. Like it's really hard on, on days when I, I don't really take days off in the same way, but I have to schedule out, you know, from one to three o'clock, I am sitting on the couch with my kids watching a movie. If I don't write it on a schedule or if I don't have it like a task that needs to be accomplished, I don't do it because I don't do free time. Um, but yeah, just- I have to do that with reading. Like I have to schedule my yes. reading time and, and it works out well for now that we have a cat. <laughs> I just right. try and like coordinate it with the time where he, I know he's going to want to like take a heavy nap on a lap. 
Yeah. So I'm like, okay, let me get in the beanbag chair with my book and I'm going to get Aww. my hour or two of reading. I love the that. Cat's going to get his snuggles. Yeah. And then, you know, cause you got to read. You do have to read. Oh yes. And you want I- to. Did you read a lot last year during the pandemic? Um, I felt like I did. I'm, I'm a slow reader, so I don't like have this like super long list, but I was always reading. Okay. I always have, I always have a book going. I mean, yeah. my, definitely my stamina wasn't long in terms of my attention. Yeah. Stamina, but I always had a book where I was like reading a chapter before bed. But if you're reading a book that's like 60 chapters, yeah. You know, it takes you a couple months to get through sure. a book and that's fine. But, but like, did your, did your reading habits change at all last year? Like, were you reaching for specific kinds of books to cope with all the fun that 2020 threw at us? I, at the beginning of the year, um, I was reading more. I, I did like a, a trial of Kindle Unlimited Ooh, okay. and I found this, um, series of psychological thrillers that I think I talked about this on a previous episode way back last year, but they're just, they're, they're really badly written where just as a writer, you're reading it going, I don't, you say this takes place in New York city, but nothing about this story indicates that the characters in New York, sure. Um, why didn't X, how come Z? So like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I was just, tore through like three of those because I was like this is so dumb it's like watching a um like I'm a fan of Lifetime movies I'm a big fan of Lifetime movies oh yeah yeah they're cringeworthy but but they're yeah but but there's a range of quality so there's like some good Lifetime movies and then there's some ones where it's like there's some warehouse in Canada where they're just (laughs) making Lifetime movies every three days yeah (laughs) so it was you know I was just doing more of that kind of thing um yeah but but I I don't think my I don't think my reading habits changed a ton last year how about you yeah my um I was very fortunate to be able to still like disappear into books. And I do the same thing. I'm always reading a book. In fact, if I finish a book um, at the end of the day, I've got to pick a new one and start it. Yeah. Because yeah. if I, if I wake up and I know I don't have a book picked out, oh my God, it's panic. Um, Cause I got to make a decision first thing in the morning and it's going to be drawn out and terrible. Yeah. I, well, I was going to say before, because like I said, I ghost wrote a bunch of romance books in 2019 and I was in, I like, went into the self-publishing world and got mm-hmm. a crash course in what's going on over there, which is very different. It is very uh, different. I, I've also, very different. I think we've talked about this before. I have like, I have several identities and there's one I use to just go into the self-publishing world yep. and find out everything and put my own stuff up to just see how the process works. Yeah. And no one will ever know no. And that's fine. No and one will ever know what I'm talking about, but now I'm ready for like, if someday Sarah Zara needs to put out her own book, I know exactly. What exactly. To do. Well, and that's why I do think it's smart for traditionally published authors to at least be prepared to learn. Yes. That because there's a lot of circumstances under which you might need to do that. Such as if your publisher decides they're going to let a book go out of print yep, uh, and you get the rights back, yeah, you can or publish it yourself or yeah, self-publishing, I have learned, um, cause I definitely had thoughts about it before I learned a lot about it. Um, and, and like 
follow now how it how it shifts it's just another tool to learn mm-hmm. you know at the, that's at every writer's disposal but well, I was saying gonna... now like when I know I keep interrupting no no no, no please point, but please no you're fine but I just want to highlight this a little bit because um I mentioned this on my most recent uh annotated courageous creativity which is the season for paid subscribers I'm doing but that when I started out like I'm older than you, as I've mentioned several times. That's okay. Um, and so when I started out there, we didn't have indie publishing the way it is. Oh, now. no, no. The only self-publishing was vanity publishing. And the thing that was bad about it was it cost writers so much money. It was so yeah. predatory. And then, and then you sold them out of the back of your yeah, car. or That is garage. not the case now. So like no. people who like me, maybe 10 years ago would say like, don't do that we're operating on this old vanity publishing paradigm. The vanity it, publishing. It's not and like also, that anymore. And also the, the, oh, this is a, a gravy train. So anybody who wants to throw stuff up there without any kind of quality control can make a fortune. And that's what happened <laughs> for a long time. Not, not everybody who self-publishes, um, publishes crap but there was a good long time where it was really hard to wade through and mm-hmm. find good stuff that was written not just um not just because you could but because you cared about the product and and it is not like that anymore no, i mean it's not competitive and and pe- good pe- stuff yeah people are hiring editors you know it's it's stuff. totally different markets and and for a lot of self-published authors it's totally different aims there are a lot of self-published authors who are in it to make money period they are not in it to write what they love and there's just like nothing wrong with that it's just a different mm-hmm. approach no i was going to say about quality of psychological thrillers set in new york and not set in new york <laughs> and also lifetime movies i'm deciding the more i write the more i read the longer i'm in publishing which is not like that long but um it's all about like compensation I feel like like we just watched I mentioned we watched Face Off I was mm-hmm. too too young to see that when it came out but it's I love Nicolas Cage I love a good cheesy action movie that's totally unbelievable and bad dialogue and just like oh my god just so pulpy and everything about it is all about compensation action sequences freaking awesome the character work not so great the the plausibility of the whole premise of John Travolta's thick neck somehow <laughs> like housing Nicholas Cage's little tiny one it, person's face off onto another person's face on in in 72 hours with no scars like it's so unplausible implausible but it doesn't matter because there's other things to compensate for it and so I feel like you see that a lot with commercial fiction it's really easy. And I, I don't consider myself to be a commercial fiction writer. I, I lean way more into literary terms. I would, I would like to win awards and die in poverty, but very well beloved more than I would like to write lots and lots of um, cheap words. Uh, and I think you're the same way that you tilt um, more literary. <laughs> well, I no, mean, just, just I'd you- say the first, like Sarah's are 1.0 would say that Sarah's our 2.0 who's 50 and needs to figure out how she's going to pay for her life till she's 80 or 90 or whatever is more like, how do I just make money? I guess I mean, ego Lindsay likes that and wants that. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. Ego. Ego Sarah would like to win literary awards. This is the gift of age is your ego starts to chill out. 
I'm able to like say hi to mine. Like it's a separate entity. Like, hello, ego. Do you need a stroke right now? Yes. Okay. Well, no, I just was going to say like the, the main, I feel like the main complaint about commercial fiction and self-published fiction is that it's like, oh, it's so bad. But it's like, there's other things there that compensate for that badness. Like, well, yeah, it's like, you don't rate everything. This is why I never, I will not participate in five-star rating systems. Oh no, me neither. I just will I not do it because every book is kind of on its own scale. And I think the whole thing is ridiculous. So yeah, you don't rate face off the way you're going to rate like the latest Terrence Malick movie or whatever. Right. Exactly. They're just, they could both be five-star movies. Exactly. And yeah, it just is, it's really interesting just seeing what some readers will accept as compensation for other things, you know, like Twilight, has a lot of things to compensate for, but when it comes to romantic and sexual tension, like nobody did it like Stephanie Meyer, like she had that compensation. So it, I don't know. I try to look at it. Um, here's a little craft tidbit for you. Uh, like when I'm looking at pacing in my books specifically, mm-hmm. I try to think, okay, how can I compensate? Like, I really want to include this big, long description. So how can I compensate for the slowdown? Well, I can use really cool language or break up the structure in some way that's interesting, or I can, cut in with a, a weird fourth wall break that's different and exciting like there's other ways to compensate mm-hmm. for pacing anyway it's all about those sliding scales you know it's true yeah and it's sometimes it's not just for some of the commercial genres it's not just compensation it's expectation it's oh like yeah yeah readers have a very set expectation of if I'm picking up a romance novel it better have xyz or else I'm gonna be mad yep absolutely Absolutely. All of the genre wars and the quality wars are just like nonsense anyway. Yeah, because they're, they're totally different things. Um, before we start to wrap up, why don't you tell people a little bit about your classes and how, how people can find out more about them? Okay. My classes, so I have, I'm smirking because I just never wanted to be a writing teacher and yet here I am. <laughs> You're good at it's it. It's fine. I am very good at it. I will yeah. say I'm very good at it. My passion is writing, not teaching, but I'm so, so happy. You, you, you get it. I know yeah. you're the same way. Same thing. Um, so I have the fast draft course, uh, fast, fast draft method course. What's it called? It's called 8020, the fast draft method. That's what it's called. Um, and then my other class is called the creative revisionist. And then I also added a kind of mini workshops that is instant access. There's four lectures or four topics that each have some lectures about like some craft things that I thought were important to share. Um, So both of my classes are six weeks long and um, you get a different lesson unlocked every week. There's you can audio. do them at your own pace. You can do them at your own yeah. pace. The one thing that you cannot do at your own pace necessarily is um, the live chats that are every other week right. during the course of the course. Um, but I do allow access for forever. So if you signed up for the class in January and weren't able to do any live chats until the next session opened in June, then you can hop into those live chats. So I try to make it fair and accessible. And, um, there is a lot of material, uh, it like a lot. Yeah. Um, You've put a lot of work into the courses. And, um, like I said, I've, I have the fast draft one and I watched like, I did like the first three or whatever. And then I stopped because yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) No, that's not why (laughs) just, just you go, Oh, okay. Like 
I got something out of this and now I'm going to go write my book. Exactly. Uh, and then like, I know I'm going to come back to it, but it was the same. The funny thing was I was doing at the same time I did Nina LaCour's slow novel lab. Yeah, I did same that the time as fast drafting and <laughs> yeah. they're not two different things. You know what I no. mean? It's like, oh yeah, our brains work a lot of different ways as we've talked about, and you can be doing both paradigms at the same time almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I, I took Nina LaCour's class in 2019 and I was thinking a lot about it when I developed the fast class, fast draft. I can't even say the name of my own course. It's hard. The curriculum. <laughs> it's a <tongue> twister. <laughs> I can type it. It looks good written. I just don't, I feel like I don't say it out loud very often. I was thinking that I very much did not want it to be the antithesis of slow drafting. I did not want it to be the anti- slow, thoughtful writing class. Um, because, and if I could go back now, I wouldn't call it the fast draft method. <laughs> I called it that because that's what everybody wants. They want a silver. Yeah, no, I think that's a fast. good name for it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just feel like so much of the actual course and the lectures are not really about like, how many words can you write? How quickly that's the way. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. Much more about like, how can you knock out some of these beliefs that you have about yourself and your writing process and mm -hmm. figure out what works best for you. So you can be, if not faster, more efficient, which is ultimately going to be faster. Or I just, just not, like not even self-limiting for me, it was just helpful to be like, okay, like my daily word count goal that I have is good. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's pretty typical. Yeah. But if I get it done in an hour every day, mate, what if I did it five times in a day? And then I'm like, that's the multiplier of how efficient I am. I but mean, it's not, not exactly one-to-one -one like that, but no. But just that idea of like, oh, what if I just, instead of going, well, you know, I did my thousand words and kind of, it only yeah. took me an hour and a half and now I have the whole day. What if like two more times that day, I was like, I'm going to do a thousand words again. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're writing 3000 words a day. Right. Well, and, and that brings up an interesting point too, which is, okay, so I've had something like, all, like around 200 students come through my classes at this point. I've talked to a lot of writers now. Um, and I feel like over and over again, the main thing that makes people quote slower or less efficient um, or less likely to push, push past like their current bounds is this very self-limiting belief that what they're writing isn't good or isn't good yet. And I, I push back against the idea of a garbage first draft or a shitty first draft or whatever. Sorry. I've been trying so hard not to swear on your podcast and oh, I, it's fine. I just did it. Um, because I just feel like while that's very freeing to think, Oh, this doesn't even count. This is just a garbage first draft. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. It's okay to write garbage. I actually personally don't like to think that anything I produce is garbage. Um, and something that I say regularly is, everything I write is really good, not because it's actually good, but because I wrote it and I'm good and I make good things and it might not be recognizably good to anybody else yet. Is this where, your, ther is this where your therapist was like delusions of grandeur? Right. Can you see where she gets it from? Obviously my first drafts are not great. You know, like maybe even my final drafts are not uh, as amazing as I think they are, but I don't really actually care what anybody else thinks because if I made it, then it's great because I'm great. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just want, I don't know. I, I, I have such compassion for other writers who don't naturally have that delusion of grandeur that I do. And I just want to, if I can give everybody just a tiny bit of that feeling that like, Hey, 
you could come back and write a second hour of writing today, even if it's not your best, because you're amazing. And what you're writing is great. And it has value and like, come back for more whenever you're ready for it. It, I don't know. I just, that's the main thing that I see stopping people or slowing them down Mm -hmm. is, is that block that they're doing it wrong. It's not good enough yet. And therefore they should really make sure that they think everything through. I think that's true or, or just avoid it altogether or avoid it or yeah. Or set those little consistent. I mean, little consistent goals is great. Don't listen to me about goals because I don't do consistent goals. I'm all or nothing and it's not great for everybody else, but, but there's, I don't know, there's wiggle room to push past that block. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So I think we've talked about this a lot, but just, I got to ask everyone this, Mm. if there's one kind of obstacle you have in your process that always is like threatening (laughs) to bring you down, what is it? And I'm going to guess that it's procrastination. Yeah, it is. Um, it's procrastination and it's also procrastivity. You know, my procrastination Mm -hmm. looks very much like, Oh, I don't feel like working on this today. So I will, uh, revise this old novella instead, or, or it'll be like, Oh, I will, um, I will cook an entire very fancy meal for my family. I'm very good at finding other things that probably need to be done. In fact, my, um, my storyteller workshop was a procrastivity project that I did to avoid. Instead of writing this really hard chapter in my current work in progress, I instead wrote an entire curriculum for a workshop and put it up (laughs) because just to avoid it. But yeah, it is, it's, it's procrastination. It's um, prioritizing and getting my brain to follow suit because just because, you know, I, I regularly will have my husband hide other projects from me, like physically remove them from sight because if I see them, I will want to work on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can physically just have what I'm supposed to work on sitting on the table in front of me, but that does not mean that my brain will yeah. cooperate or see it. So working on that. And also um, something I've worked on a lot is this idea that bad feelings or feelings of discomfort or feelings of um, self-doubt or feelings of boredom mean something. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a lot in a lot of writing advice that's like, if you feel good about it, the reader will feel good about it, or you need to be excited about it. Otherwise your readers will be bored. And I just feel like something I've had to really learn to do is to sit with the boredom of writing a book. Yeah. Just like learn, like sometimes it it's just going to be boring. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable and that doesn't mean that I need to, that like my gut is telling me to work on something else. It just means even the thing you love most in the world sometimes isn't fun. And, and, and you're, you're right. Like that, that advice where it's like, if you're feeling bored, your reader's probably going to feel bored. And I don't believe in that because a lot of times when I'm rereading something, the part that I felt was like the most awful, excruciating thing to write, I either don't even notice it being different from any of the other parts, or it's like some of the best stuff. So yeah, it's, you can't always listen to your emotional energy. No, no, especially, especially, um, when you think about emotions, yeah, they're just not hints or proof all the time. It just is your brain trying to get you to do something easier. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. How about, um, something that's, that you're really loving right now, some show or movie or music or something. Mm, Um, let's see. 
well, we watched Face Off the other night. We're going through, I made this list, a keep a list, I should say, of movies that I want to watch so that when we're, when it's time to watch a movie, I have choices. And we're going back through and watching a bunch of movies that, so I was born in 1987. Um, so I missed a lot of kind of movies in the 90s that were for teens and adults. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we watched Face Off. We watched, um, I hadn't seen Aaron Brockovich. Oh, you haven't? Well, it was rated R. It was not allowed in my house. Uh, We're going to watch Speed. Um, Oh, I'm so excited for you. I haven't seen Speed in a long time. Oh, we're like halfway through The Fugitive. Like all of these are movies I'm aware of culturally. And I definitely have seen little snippets of on Mm -hmm. well yeah like because they're always on like tbs or they were when i was growing up but to sit and actually watch them and like face off was so stupid and good and the fugitive is just so good and good i just love it i just love so that's what we're doing after after you watch the fugitive if you haven't seen it and you get a chance to find i think john mulaney's most recent stand-up special Mm, he has a whole thing about the fugitive interwoven through that that's just great and hilarious. i'm excited i love it i just love it and all of these um they're really giving me insight to to like men who were men in the 90s and what mm-hmm. they watched and what they were growing up with like pre-fight club stuff it's it's just interesting to like mm-hmm. see this is stuff like my dad would have been watching and so that's like a whole other thing but just this whole, this whole nineties, um, like we watched Die Hard, we watched like this, this masculine, this hyper masculine mm-hmm. action, dumb action mm-hmm. movie. Um, just seeing kind of that cultural moment now, and and the I would say Sandra Bullock and Julia Roberts as like the ideal of yep, cool girl next door woman hood girlfriend material. Oh yeah, as the ideal. I think the nineties, those were the two that were idealized in held the male up imagination. that way yeah I think you're right although I do remember my dad regularly saying that Helen Hunt was his dream woman and being like what Helen Hunt like <laughs> her I love Helen Hunt have, have you ever great. seen as good as it gets yes that yep that's, that's one and, of my favorites and, and I do love one. her in that yeah so it's it's interesting for sure it's been it's been great so that's a, that does sound fun um and if you have more 90s movies recommendations for Lindsay, you can tell them to her <laughs> tell, tell them on to her for sure. um, Twitter. Where can people find out more about you and your books and classes? Where can they find you on social media? Where, yes. where are you? Where? I'm on Twitter. Uh, and let's see, my handle is Lindsay McCall. That's my middle name. I made it way before I knew I would ever amount to anything, but you can just search Lindsay Eager and you'll find me on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. Um, it's pictures of my kids. So if you don't like that, then don't come by. Um, my website is lindsayeagerbooks.com. I've got all information about my books. I should have two books out next year. I'm still a writer. I'm still here. I'm going to be relevant again soon. From 2018 is not that long ago. Oh, you're, but it, you're, I just, you're doing fine. <laughs> I know my poor ego though, is just like, Lindsay, what are you doing? And that's, Bye. and that's Lindsay with an A. And my last name is also E-A-G-A-R. I, I know the temptation to spell it like oh, it the word. is it is so I didn't even I still I my brain rejects that but I can see it right here you're you right you can see it so you're right you, about the spelling of your own name <laughs> I am you know it would be a lot easier if my family had just changed it because over the years I'm sure there's a Lindsay Eager with an ER who's gotten a lot of emails and invitations and things but it's AR so it's Lindsay because I have a lot to say and it's eager like not like the word 
but I am very I will, I will put links in the notes. Thank also. you. Thank you, Lindsay. It's been so great to talk. This has been, it's been wonderful to talk to you too. And um, um, send me any, I was going to say, text me or email me any other questions you have about ADHD. It's my, it's my, I hyper-focused on ADHD as soon as I got diagnosed with ADHD. So I understand. Lots of resources. I, when I've gone through different phases of my self-help reading, I immediately become an expert. So yep. I will, I will say to the world out there, ask me anything about being the codependent product of an alcoholic household. You um, are the person that comes to mind when I hear the word codependent. So you have branded yourself. Oh, Sarah, that. She's an expert. Yep. Um, thanks again, Lindsay. And thank you listeners. Thank you. Substack subscribers of all sorts. Thanks to Dave Connors for the theme music. Thanks everyone for liking and sharing and leaving ratings uh, for the podcast. It's helpful Head on over to thiscreativelife.substack.com for more about the show and the notes from the episode. Hang in there. We'll be back soon. I'm glad you're here.